we have the best news. We've just forgotten how good the good news really is. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Megan Cornwell. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you by the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. This monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as news, reviews, columnists and much more. Check out our best subscription offers now at premierchristianity.com. I'm joined today by Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Life and founding pastor of Saddleback Church in California. Saddleback has grown from one site planted in 1980 to a congregation of 30,000 across 20 locations. Rick Warren himself was named one of the 100 most influential people in Time magazine, and in 2009, he delivered the invocation at President Barack Obama's inauguration. Today, we'll be finding out a bit more about Rick's life, faith, and ministry. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Megan. And first, let me just say, uh, I want to say thank you to everybody who listens to Daily Hope on Premier Radio. I love you all. I thank God for your comments. Uh, uh, You know, the comments do get to come to me. I I see your prayer requests. We love you back as you've expressed love to us and we're we're grateful for uh, premier radio just to be able to have this connection with so many friends uh in the uk yeah um now in terms of your what you're best known for you know here apart from your work on premier radio is is the the purpose-driven life you know it's a, it's a massive book over here um, I remember reading it when I first became a Christian, found it found it really powerful, really helpful. Where did the idea for the book come from in the first place? Uh, I wrote Purpose Driven Life to help people, people move from success to significance, to, a, to a, a deeper level. Nobody's more surprised, uh, Megan, than me on the success of that book. It's still selling a million copies a year <laughs> uh, over 20 years later. It's now sold over 50 million uh, copies in English alone. And it's in Guinness Book of World Records as the most translated book in the world mm. next to the Bible. So it's in over 200 languages now, and they keep adding them every year. And so uh, it, nobody's more surprised at that. I, I spent um, 12 hours a day for seven months writing that book. I would get up in the morning about 4.30, and I wouldn't shower or shave or eat breakfast. I just put on some sweatpants and a t-shirt and I'd go to a little office behind our worship center at church and uh, turn on a little light and start typing and I'd type till about noon and then uh, my ADD would kick in and I'd start saying I got to get out of here I got to get with people you know like a thousand ants crawling up and down your back uh, some somebody on my staff would bring me lunch I'd walk around our campus which is it's like a college campus our church is huge. It's 120 acres. And, and, uh, and then I would take a shower and I would uh, go back to writing for another five hours, go home uh, at night, uh, eat dinner, play with the kids and was in bed by about 8 p.m. And I was very disciplined for seven months mm-hmm. uh, doing that. I didn't know the book was going to be a, a bestseller. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. But I did know that it was anointed mm-hmm. by God, because many times as I was writing, Tears would be flooding down my face as I was typing. And I would go, I need this. What I'm typing right now, I'm not good enough to think this up. Somebody, the Holy Spirit is inspiring me right now. 
And I need this myself. And mm -hmm. so while I didn't know it was going to be this massive hit, I, I, I did know that God was going to use it because mm -hmm. he was using it in my own life as I wrote it. Rick, I recently heard you speaking about that time and the, the time that you spent on the book. And you talked about, were well, you talking about it in the context of some of the challenges that have come in your life and some of the very, very difficult things you've been through? Right. And you talked about um, moments in your life where you've had something very significant to do for God. For example, that right. book, you know, that, that right. like you say, has got this special power about it. Um, right. And you talked about the kind of I mean, you, you didn't use the word spiritual attack, but you talked about it in those sorts of terms in, in terms of what happened with your son at that time. Um, can you tell us a little bit of, a bit about that, about uh, Matthew? Yes, yeah, and, yeah. Um, Megan, I've learned that any time uh, you're trying to do something significant uh, for the Lord, not for yourself, there's going to be opposition. In fact, as you read the New Testament, I, I say opportunity plus opposition equals God's will. Opportunity plus opposition equals God's will. Paul, everywhere he went, God used him as, a, as an apostle, but he also had opposition everywhere he went. And you're going to have this as a, a mother, as a father, uh, as a brother, sister, as a single person. Um, anytime you're trying to do something significant uh, or would make a difference, would help other people, in the name of the Lord, uh, there's going to be opposition. And uh, I found that over 50 years of ministry, I started quite young. I started when I was 16 years old, uh, uh, that, that I would have internal opposition and I would have external opposition. Uh, when I wrote that book, for instance, uh, the internal opposition is my son, my youngest son's mental illness, just really elevated. And he started to become suicidal. He eventually did take his life. He lasted another uh, 10 years and was really a very courageous young man at 27. He, he, well, when he was 17, my son came to me and he said, Dad, it's real obvious. And he had, he had struggled with depression since birth and struggle with mental illness what, since what, birth. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Because I've, I've heard you say that before, Rick, and I'm really interested to ask you about that. Well, you know what? He was misdiagnosed many, many different times. Sometimes he was called bipolar. Sometimes he was called uh, BPD. Uh, you know, when they first, as a little child, they just said, oh, he has ADD, has attention deficits and all these different things. But uh, regardless- you, you, mentioned how, you mentioned ADD. Is that something you struggle with as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's kind of a family trait. My right. father had it. Uh, I had it. Uh, my, a couple of my kids have had it. And yeah. so it, it's just, uh, we live on a broken planet. The bottom line, Megan, is that all of us have broken minds. Okay, everybody, nobody is, is, has a perfect mind. Uh, we all struggle with uh, fears. We all struggle with worries. Uh, some struggle with anger. Uh, some struggle with, uh, you know, getting their thoughts clear. Uh, and your, your mind is just a muscle. It's just a, it's an organ. If I take a pill, if my heart doesn't work and I take a pill for it, there's no shame in that. If I, if my spleen or my gallbladder or my, uh, you know, liver doesn't work and I take a pill for that, there's no shame in it. Why is it if my brain doesn't work, I take a pill for it. I'm supposed to keep it a secret. It's just an organ. It's another organ. And just like some people's back goes out and some people's 
heart goes out. Some people's brain doesn't work perfectly. Everything is broken on this planet. So we all have uh, a, a kind of mental illness, just in different degrees in different areas, uh, with compulsions or fears or, or thoughts that we don't like and things like that. But very early on, Matthew began to struggle with a hypersensitivity to sound. And uh, uh, things could make him depressed very, very quickly. He could look at a picture and all of a sudden he'd start to cry. And there was, uh, you know, we, we knew something was, he was clinically depressed at a very early age. When he was 17 years old, he came to me and said, Dad, why can't I just go to heaven right now? He said, I know I'm saved. I know where I'm going. But he said, it's real obvious I'm not going to be healed. We've been to the best doctors in the world. Uh, we've had the best prayer warriors praying for me. We've had, uh, Dad, you're a man of faith. Mom is a woman of faith. Uh, it's real obvious I I'm not going to get healed. Why can't I just go to heaven right now? I'm standing there looking at my 17-year-old son at that time. We were both sobbing. And I said, Matthew, I don't believe you want to die. I believe you just want the pain to go away. And that, that's what was, everybody wants. They, 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 they want to be pain-free. And I said, you know, I've prayed my entire life for you two things. One, uh, that you will be healed. And I, I know God heals today. Uh, I don't care how he does it, if he wants to do a miracle or if he wants to use medicine. I'm not prescribing how he does it. But God still does heal today in many different ways. But the the reason, the fact is not everybody gets healed. That's why they're called miracles. If everybody got healed every time everybody prayed, that wouldn't be called a miracle because they're not normal. They, they, they're outside of the norm. And one of the questions I'm going to have when I get to heaven on my list of questions is God, why? Okay. Mm -hmm. Some of the things we're not going to know why until we get to heaven. Mm -hmm. We don't. Under, and so I don't even try to explain it. I don't think you try to, some things you just have to go, me trying to understand God is like an ant trying to understand the internet. <laughs> I don't have the brain capacity at this point to understand why everything happens the way it does. So I have to just trust. Mm. But I said, you know, Matthew, the truth is sometimes we live with the same problem all our lives, a chronic problem. A, a child that's born quadriplegic is going to live its entire life, her entire life as a quadriplegic. And so what do you do with problems that can't be solved? You have to learn to manage them in, for, for the glory of God. And I said, my prayer is either A, you'll be healed by miracle or medicine, doesn't matter, or B, if, if it doesn't happen, that through your spiritual growth, through counseling, through medicine, through therapy, through all of the relationships around you, you'll be able to manage this pain for the glory of God, which means you'll use it to help other people. He made it 10 more years after that. And I would call him one of the bravest men I knew who got up every day facing excruciating pain in his brain. You sound, you sound like a, a wonderful father, to be honest, the way that you, you pastored him through those challenges and the way that you communicated to him and, and in such a grace, graceful way. Did you feel in any way that you had failed him, you know, when, 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 when he, he took his life? I, I, I didn't because I knew that that's, those kind of thoughts actually 
are, are, are not from God the Father. Uh, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anytime you or anybody feels condemnation, it's not coming from God the Father. It's coming from Satan. He's called the accuser uh, uh, of the brothers and sisters. Satan can only lie. And what he wants you to do is when you go through a tough time to A, second guess your relationship to God. And B, second guess who you are because he wants to mess up who your identity is. I remember when, Megan, when, when Matthew died, it, of course, as a well-known person, um, it was big news. It was on CNN and it was broadcast on BBC and all, literally all around the world. In fact, I would be walking down an airport and I would look up and the television screens would be on overhead and the CNN ticker would say, my son's name, Matthew Warren, and the word suicide. That's gut-wrenching to, uh, to, to walk through and see your son's name on a TV screen and, and all the mean things that people said. People who don't like you will just use any pain you've got to kind of dig it in further. But on the other hand, I received, and I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating, maybe 35,000 letters of condolences from people around the world uh, when that happened. And they were very comforting and very encouraging. But you know what? The ones that meant the most to me of all those letters were, were not the ones that I got from kings and queens and presidents and rock stars and, and famous people. Those were, those were nice. But the ones that meant the most to me were people who wrote me who had been brought to Christ by my son, Matthew. And many of them would say, I know Matthew struggled with mental illness. I know he struggled with depression. And he actually came onto this suicide website and led me to Christ. And I'm going to be in heaven because of him. And, and I, I remember writing in my journal, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And then I wrote, and we're all broken. Because we are all, we all have, everything on the planet is broken. The, the weather's broken, the economy's broken, politics are broken, uh, our relationships are broken, our bodies are broken, and we live on a fractured planet because of sin. But God even uses broken people for good and for his glory. And so we decided, Kay and I, that we weren't going to waste our pain, and of course, Sometimes your great, not sometimes, always, your greatest ministry in life will come out of your deepest pain. If you will be honest to God about it, honest with yourself, and vulnerable enough to share it with other people. We think that we help other people through our strengths. We actually help other people through our weaknesses more than our strengths. It's the exact opposite of what we think. If I were to share with you all my strengths, all the really cool celebrities that I've got to meet around the world and all the neat things I get to do, you'd be going, well, goody for you. It doesn't make us close. It actually feels competitive. It creates jealousy. It creates resentment. And it doesn't bring us together. But if I do what, like what I'm doing right now, where I'm talking to you about the stress of having a child struggle with mental illness his entire life, then people go, wow. If God used Rick in spite of all that, well, then maybe God could use me. 
and and we actually help people through our our weaknesses. It, it, it's the fellowship of suffering that binds us together, not the fellowship of success. Well, a lot of Christians would really struggle, you know, going through something like that and and holding on to their faith, to be honest, yeah. you know, and, and you seem to have been able to do that in a remarkably, in a remarkable way, actually. It's easier looking back than when you're in the situation. And when Matthew died for the next 16 weeks, I basically spent 12 hours a day alone with God or with Kay, and that was it. I, I didn't preach a single sermon. I didn't go to church for 16 weeks. I needed to be alone in my grief. And in that grief, um, what I did is I, I lived in the Psalms. Psalms, there are 150 Psalms, and they're not all about praise and thanksgiving. One third of the 150 Psalms, 50 of them are what are called Psalms of Lament. And basically they're David complaining to God about how his life is not right and how upset he is with the bad things that are going on in his life. And in those Psalms of Lament, David cries out and says things like, God, I think you lied to me. God, you cheated me. You're not taking care of me like you promised to take care of me. And it's kind of like a little child beating on his mama or daddy's legs. The parent can handle that, that you know you can handle their anger, you, that you can understand their immaturity. And so your heavenly father can handle your complaints. He's, he's mature enough. Let me say it in a different way. He's, he's God. He, he doesn't, he, he's not blown away like, oh, wow, I never saw that one coming. Or, boy, you're, you're right. He can handle it. And so complaining to God is an act of worship sometimes. Telling God, God, I'm doubting you right now. That's an act of worship. Because who are you talking to when you're doing it? You're talking to God. And so to express your fears, your doubts, your anger, in grief, there is no wrong emotion. You can't learn to become like Jesus until you learn how to weep, until you learn how to grieve. And it says that Jesus wept. He wept when he saw everybody grieving the death of Lazarus. He even knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but he still wept. He still grieved. Grief is a gift. It's how we get through the transitions of life. I will never get over the loss of my son, but I have gotten through it. Rick, you talk about loss and you talk about the transitions of life. Can we talk a bit about what's happened recently in Saddleback Church? Um, sure. This whole issue of, of the, the denomination that you've been part of for so many years, kicking you out over your yeah. view on women pastors. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about how that felt? <laughs> you know, you're talking about emotions and, and, and how God yeah, gives yeah, us yeah, emotions yeah. For, important, for an important um, reason. How did you feel when, yeah. uh, when the SBC kicked you out? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. First place, I intend to appeal it uh, at the convention in June, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the bottom line on that is I actually have a sympathy for people who, you know, Christians, there are about 2.6 billion of them in the world, uh, are pretty much evenly divided over the role of women in the church. If you're a Catholic, you can't be a, you can't be a woman priest, okay? That's a billion right there. Okay, so a lot of Christians have been divided and have been debating the role of women in the church for 2,000 years. 
And so since I happened to be on the side that said, no, we can't have women pastors for a long, long time, I can actually understand the fears and the uh, the perceptions and, and what's going on here. I can sympathize with that. What actually changed my mind was scripture. Most people think, well, if you change your mind on this, you must be caving into culture. You must become a liberal. You must not believe the Bible uh, anymore. Absolutely not. None of those things could have changed my mind. I have seen pressure all around for years, uh, and, and it didn't change my mind. Uh, I've traveled to countries where women pastors lead churches of 20, 30, 40,000 people, far bigger than anything in the UK or America. That didn't change my mind. What changed my mind was actually looking at scripture and looking at some verses that the other side doesn't tend to look at. I know the passage in Timothy, and I know the passage in Titus, and I know the passage in 1 Corinthians. And I'd be happy to explain why I believe they have misinterpreted those passages. But what I want to talk about is the verses nobody talks about. There are three passages in Scripture that changed my mind on what is the role of women in Scripture. And it started when I started to to keep a promise I had made to my mentor 23 years ago. My mentor was Billy Graham. When I was a young man, I started preaching. I was licensed to preach by my church at age 16 and hired by the California Baptist Convention to do youth revivals and crusades up and down the West Coast as a teenager while I was still in high school. I had preached over 120 Harvest Crusades before I was 20. Billy Graham heard about this long-haired, skinny young man on the West Coast with wire-rimmed glasses in the Jesus movement. And, uh, and, and I was preaching up a storm. He took me under his arm and mentored me for 50 years. And so over the time, I got to be a part of Amsterdam 83, Amsterdam 86, Amsterdam 2000, these giant training uh, uh, events for evangelists and pastors where Billy Graham would bring 10, 15,000 leaders from around the world, all around the world for 10 days of training. And in, uh, in, uh, Amsterdam 86, Billy Graham took my very first book, which I was wrote, wrote in my 20s, called Bible Study Methods. And he had it translated into 17 languages and uh, gave it free to everybody at that conference and had me teach it to 13,000 leaders. When Amsterdam 2000 came along, Billy asked me to do a conference within the conference. And he said, I want us to do a conference on finishing the task. How do we complete the Great Commission? And I want you to invite uh, 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 people in to, to talk about how to do that. I said, well, I'll help organize the event, but I can't lead this movement because I'm still pastoring a church and it's pretty, pretty busy. I, I told him when I step down from Saddleback Church, I will begin to lead this movement. And, and we had Paul Eshelman lead it for many years. In 2018, uh, I became the leader of the Finishing the Task Coalition, which is about 2,000 denominations, mission agencies, organizations all around the world committed to fulfilling the Great Commission uh, in our lifetime by AD 2033. We can talk about that later. In preparation for that, I started studying the Great Commission in detail. And when COVID hit, I read in the last three years, 
over 200 books on the Great Commission. That's what changed my mind about women in ministry. The Great Commission was not given simply to men. It was given to men and women. It wasn't given to ordained people. It was given to every person. Now, there are four verbs in the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, uh, baptize, and teach. Men and women are to do both, all four things. Women are to go. Women are to make disciples. Women are to baptize. And women are to teach. You can't say, well, the first two are for men and women, the second half are only for men. That's called eisegesis. That's reading something into the text. This is everybody gets to play now. Everybody, men and women, are to go. Men and women are to make disciples. Men and women are to baptize. Men and women are to teach. Saddleback Church has baptized more adult believers, Christians, new believers, than any church in American history. In the 43 years I was pastor, we baptized 57,000 new believers. That's unheard of, 57,000 new believers. Why? Because in our church, if you lead someone to Christ, you get to baptize them. So if a wife leads her husband to Christ, she gets to baptize her husband. Or if a parent gets leads their child to Christ, they get to baptize their child. Or a friend leads a friend to Christ, they... That you get to baptize that in the first 300 years of the church, that's what the church did. There was no clergy laity split. There was no, no ordained section and then unordained section. It was everybody taking the great commandment and the great commission and doing them. During the first 300 years of Christianity, that was the fastest period of growth of the church. We grew about 50% a decade for 300 years. We went from 140 people in the upper room to the official religion of the Roman Empire. And the, the Roman denarius in AD 7 has a picture of Caesar on it. I have these two coins. And in about 350, the Roman denarius has a cross on it. On it. The cross has replaced Caesar on the money. That's culture change. Now, why did that? Because everybody got to do it, men and women. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. There are other issues, for example, you know, same-sex marriage that people have, you know, similarly come to, to a different theological view on after having read around the subject, read, you know, contextually, read more of the Bible. Are, are there other areas that you feel theologically you can see yourself moving in? No, I don't. For instance, it, it, to me, it's very clear about uh, uh, God's creation and gender uh, of male and female. Uh, et- forget the Bible, just look at human bodies. You're either one or the other. Are there exceptions? Of course they are, but exceptions don't make the rule. That's very important. Exceptions don't make the rule, okay? It's just like mental illness doesn't make the rule for for everybody else or any other thing makes a rule for anything else. 
there are exceptions to everything in life. Okay, sure, there are. And everything's broken and we're all broken. Every, you know what, I would say this, everybody on the planet earth has a broken view of sex. Everybody does. I don't think anybody has a perfect view of sexuality, okay? We're broken in different ways, but I don't think anybody has the correct understanding of full intention the way God intended sex to be for everybody. So I'm not putting myself in a special better class, but I'm just saying that the difference, a church is a place for sinners. Here's the difference. We admit it. We, we admit, I don't have it perfect. I don't have it right. And I'm not proud of my, my sins. I'm not proud of my things that I do wrong. Uh, and that's the difference. Mm. So it's interesting because you you talk about the the women in in um, women as pastors, women in leadership as a, as a secondary issue for the church. Yeah, yeah. I think there are other Christians who would say, well, actually, same sex marriage is also a secondary issue. You know, you can it's it's not incumbent upon salvation. It's not central to, to salvation. Right, 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 what, right. what would you say to that? Well, I tell you, there are secondary issues. There's one group that doesn't believe any issue is secondary. They're called fundamentalists. And let me explain what fundamentalism is because it doesn't mean what it used to mean. A hundred years ago, I would have called myself a fundamentalist, but that's not what it means anymore. A hundred years ago, the man who, who invented the term was talking about we are committed to the fundamental cardinal doctrines of the church, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, the inerrant authority of scripture. I hold to all of those things. And a, a fundamentalist used to mean we hold to the basic orthodox cardinal doctrines of the church that have been held for 2000 years. But now today, the term fundamentalist refers to a mindset. And there are secular fundamentalists, there are Muslim fundamentalists, there are Buddhist fundamentalists, there are atheist fundamentalists, there are communist fundamentalists, there are Christian fundamentalists. What, what's the, what are these people have in common? They've stopped listening. They have stopped listening. Uh, here's the difference between a conservative Christian and a fundamentalist Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I believe the Bible is without error, that it is, it is the authority for our lives. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. A fundamentalist believes in the inerrancy of their interpretation. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I don't believe in the inerrancy of your opinion of it or your interpretation of it. Or for that matter, I don't believe in the inerrancy of my interpretation of it, which is why we have to come humbly to scripture. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Paul talks about an entire chapter on these secondary issues in Romans 14. Go read Romans 14. Teaches how to deal with what he calls, Paul calls, disputable matters. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, you know, uh, eating meat or drinking wine or uh, all the, they have nothing to do with your mm -hmm. salvation. And mm -hmm. he basically says, keep these between yourself and, and the Lord and, and don't make it, don't divide over. Here's the mm -hmm. problem we've got today, Megan. We've got Christians dividing over secondary issues when they should be unifying over central issues as the world gets more evil and more dark, we need each other as Christians. Mm -hmm. We need unity. Now, think about so. This. So, Rick, can I? Sorry, can I just stop you there? So, yeah. just just to come back to that that issue of of to grapple with that issue of um, 
churches that um you know will bless same-sex marriages or or, or will sure. conduct same-sex mar- marriages because that's the context that we're that we're working in here in the UK at the moment. Would you say that within your denomination, for example, uh, if you have churches that are doing that, would you would you include them in in the unity? Then would you say yes, that's a secondary issue. Therefore, we must unify around the more important things like the Great Commission. I think that we. I think any denomination has the right to remove from itself any church that harms the testimony of the church. Saddleback ordaining women doesn't harm the testimony of the church. Sin, if Saddleback is endorsing sin, we should be, we should be removed from it. Uh, racism, sexual abuse, uh, approving of sexual immorality. These are sins. They, these are sins. Then you should remove, if you're harming the testimony of the church, then the Bible says you should separate from those kind of Christians. Mm-hmm. But on matters of uh, people disagree over de- denominations, they disagree over dispensations, they disagree over the meaning of the atonement, they disagree over the second coming, they disagree over women, they disagree over uh, predestination and the meaning, they disagree over uh, uh, election. I-, I could give you a hundred different doctrinal things people disagree on. That's not about sin. Those are doctrinal disagreements over your interpretation of the scripture. And we both believe the scripture is God's word and we should listen to it. We've just come down with different interpretations mm. of it. Mm. But, but something that causes, if, if we are endorsing a, a sinful lifestyle, we're endorsing a, a uh, somebody, we've got a, 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 a pedophile as a pastor, that church should be kicked out. Let's just be clear, because we, we aren't talking about pedophiles here. We are talking about gay relationships. Well, I happen to believe uh, uh, that that uh, uh, gay relations are not God's best. Mm-hmm. I, I just believe that. I think I think I can make a pretty strong case for that. Um, if we were all gay, none of us would be here. Everybody's here because of a heterosexual relationship. Everybody, and when you look at the human body. It's clear that parts are made for each other. The parts of a woman and the parts for a man are made for each other. Not only that, there's a purpose for that. Going back to purpose, what what is the purpose of homosexuality? It can't create. Mm. It can't create. It can't create anything. And, And yet sex was given. The very first command that God gave was be fruitful and multiply. God chose sex to multiply the planet. Why? It's interesting that everybody who goes to heaven got here. Everybody, anybody goes to heaven. The only way you get to heaven is to be alive. And the only way you get to be alive is through heterosexual sex. So, so sex do, would is, you... not, is, is not dirty. It's holy. Hmm. It's so in holy. that, in that only... case, Rick, would you have any message for the Church of England? Because obviously the Church of England is currently going through this very, you know, um, hot button topic at the moment. And um, as as I'm sure you're probably aware, that the heads of the Church of England have recently said that they will start to bless same-sex civil unions, same-sex marriages. That's where we are here in the UK. So do you have any advice um, in terms of, well, when we talk about unity, it sounds to me like you're suggesting actually, no, those churches that, you know... I, I, believe I it's a sin harms, believe it's i think sin. that harms the testimony of the church and in that case i would separate i would yeah in fact uh there's a, a group uh it's interesting in the we call it the church of england but most anglicans aren't in the uk 
There are less than 2 million members of the Church of England in the UK. Nigeria has 8 million members of the Church of England. Nigeria has four times the number of Anglicans as the UK. So really, it might be named, we need to be renamed the Church of Africa. And, <laughs> and those, those, when you talk about the great guy, I, I know all those archbishops. Uh, I've known, you know, Akinola, uh, Nzimbi, Rumbi, Kalini. I, I know all of these African uh, uh, and even the new guys. And they're actually meeting in a thing called GAFCON in April, which, as you know, is basically saying, we think that our leaders have strayed too far from scripture. I support that. I actually support that because I, I think that is harming the testimony of the church. So you obviously ser you're serving in the U.S. context, um, and re in recent years we've seen you know the, the evangelical church become quite prominent in the political fabric in the U.S. You know I'm thinking about the the way that they supported Trump, the Capitol riots, uh, Roe versus Wade, all of that kind of thing. What are your views on Christian nationalism? I'm a totally opposed to it. Jesus did not die to save any particular nation. He died to save the world. God has not called me to save America. God has called me to save Americans and Canadians and Mexicans and everybody else as well. When, when, when a nation or, or uh, uh, politics replaces uh, the gospel, which is a connection to the whole world, uh, then you've, you've created an idol. And I would like to disavow a lot of things that have been done in the name of evangelicals in America. I think it's a tragedy that that word now represents a political position rather than what evangelical used to mean. It used to mean we believe you must be born again. We believe in the authority of scripture. We believe uh, that we are to take the gospel to the whole world. That was evangelicalism. And now it means uh, we're part of a right-wing uh, a, a group, which people in many ways disavowed the very thing that for thousands, hundreds of years, they said character matters. And all of a sudden it didn't matter anymore. What mattered was power. I'm embarrassed by that. I think they're wrong. And I think that there's a judgment on that. Here's, what, here's why we need to get back to the understanding of the body of Christ involves the whole world. I am a six foot two and a half white American male blonde. But I actually have more in common with a five foot tall Korean woman who's a Christian than I do with another tall American white male, because we're not going to the same place. She's my sister. That guy's not my brother. He may look like me. We have, may have the same nationality. We may even have the same political views, but he's not going to heaven and we're not going to spend eternity together. And my allegiance should be to that five foot tall, dark haired Korean woman my allegiance should be greater because we're in the family of God than with anybody who looks like me, shares my nationality, and shares my political views. M many people have forgotten that. They have given their primary allegiance to a political view over Jesus as Lord. There's a word for that, idolatry. And it, it will be judged. It will be judged. It is not my job to make America great again. 
it is my job to bring people to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's happened is this is mission drift. And as a result, churches are declining in America, just like they have been declining in the UK. Um, but let me give you some good news that people need to understand. We're going through right now a shifting of the church, not a shrinking of the church. While Christianity has been co-opted by politics in America, and Christianity has been, and is declining as a result, and Christianity has been declining in Europe for a long time, um, it's exploding south of the equator. The Southern Hemisphere, a hundred years ago, the majority of Christians were in Europe and North America. That's not true anymore. That's not true right now. The majority of Christians are in the Southern Hemisphere and they are exploding in Africa, Latin America, and in Asia. The future of of the church is Southern Hemisphere, urban, and black and brown or the color of whatever Asians are the color of, okay? It's, it's, it's moving to the South and they are going to be leading the church and it's exploding there. The church is growing South of the first place. Let me just say as a whole, in the last 23 years, since the year 2000, the church has been growing twice as fast as the population for the last 23 years around the world. Most people don't know that. People think, well, we're just in decline. It's post-Christian. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Maybe post-Christian UK, post-Christian America, but it's not post-Christian world. Christianity has grown twice as fast, 100% faster than the population growth every year for the last 23 years. And there are some denominations, some tribes that are growing well, the, the evangelical and Pentecostal are growing four times faster than the population every year for the last 23 years. I spoke at Davos about this, and they couldn't believe it. Uh, I was invited to the World Economic Forum, and I said, you guys think that the future is secular. I hate to tell you this. It's not. The world is becoming more religious, not less. And if you as a European businessman want to work around the world, you're going to have to learn how to work with religious people because the future is religious pluralism, not secularism. Let me give you a give me a good example. Right now, there are about 900 million Buddhists in the world, about 900 million. They're right at a billion Hindus in the world. Most of them are in, in uh, India because they're not a missionary uh, faith. There's about 1.4 billion Muslims in the world. There are only 14 million uh, Jews in the world. There should be 10 times that number, but the Holocaust killed four generations. There should be 140 million Jews or more, but the Holocaust, I mean, we only have 14 million Jews in the entire world, but there are 2.6 billion Christians in the world. Now, they're not all your brand, they're not all my brand, but if you were to say, do you believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah. You believe Jesus was who he said he was? Yeah. Son of God? Yeah. You believe he died on the cross for our sins? Yes. You believe he resurrected on Easter? Yeah. You believe he went, went back to heaven and is coming back one day? Yeah. You believe he sent the church, sent the Holy Spirit to start church? Yes. Then we're on the same team. You're not a Muslim. 
We may disagree over Mary or a lot of other different doctrines, but you're not a Muslim. You're not a Buddhist. You're not a Hindu. Now, we have to re-evangelize many cultural Christians, particularly in North America and in Europe. They have to be re-evangelized. But it's not like you're starting from scratch. Now, with 2.6 billion Christians in the world, that means one out of every three people on the planet is a follower of Jesus or claims to be a follower of Jesus. They may not even be going to church right now, but they're, they're not a Buddhist. They're not a Hindu. And, and so let me break that down. If the church is 2.6 billion, it means the church is larger than China. The church is larger than China and India put together. The church is larger than China, the United States, and Europe put together. We are the biggest thing on the planet. We don't have anything to, to, to be embarrassed about. We, there's nothing bigger. I could take you to 10 million villages in the world. And the only thing in it's a church. They don't have a school. They don't have a grocery store. They don't have a post office. They got a church. The first thing in every village is a church. And the second thing is a bar. <laughs> okay, a bar. But after that, uh, you know, it, that, that it, we are the biggest organization on planet Earth. So what are we, what are we worried about? Why, yeah. why are we, it, we, it's like the, the story of the, the nine blind guys holding on to different parts of the elephant and trying to describe it. And, you know, if you hold on to the tail, you think it's a snake and you hold on to the, you know, leg, you think it's a tree. And we don't, we don't have a clear vision of how big the church really mm. is. So do you think Christians in the West need to have a bit more courage about the way that they talk about their faith as a result of what you're saying? What, what, what's your sort of overall message to the church based on we that, that broad view? Yes, we have been shunned into silence. And, and the cancel culture and, and the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And it's like, what other people think of you is none of your business. Why, why do you even care what other people think about you? Live for an audience of one. And, and if you do that, people will respect you for that. It, it's, it's when you are uh, so afraid, uh, when, when really, we, it's like we have the good news. The good news is not like trying to give people cancer. It's how to have meaning and purpose in life. It's how to have your past forgiven, how to have a purpose for living, how to have a home in heaven. Where else are you going to get that? We have the best news. We've just forgotten how good news, how good the good news really is. Just to go back quickly to something you said a minute ago, Rick, um, if I may, you said that Christianity had been co-opted in America. Yeah when we were talking about Christian nationalism. Yeah. Now, I just want to quickly talk about Roe versus Wade and your views on that, because um, some would see, you know, that that change in legislation as an example of Christians co-opting, um, you know, the legislature and, and having that that overreach and that over-influence over, you know, the judiciary and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. those those sort of the apparatus of the, the American state. What What's your view on that? Is it, was Roe versus Wade something that you welcomed when you heard when you heard about oh, it? Oh, of course I welcome it because it, the Bible says in Psalm one thirty nine, "You your hands formed me in my mother's womb and planned every day of my life before I was born." Abortion short circuits the purpose of God for that child. Okay, you can't read Psalm one thirty nine. The Bible says God planned every day of your life before you were born. And so that short circuits God's plan. 
Um, so of course I'm, I'm pro-life, but I'm more than pro-life. This scares people because people say, are you pro-life? And I say, no, I'm whole life. What do you mean by that? I don't just want that little girl to be born. I wanted to grow up without poverty. I wanted to grow up safe and sound and secure. I wanted to grow up without being sexually abused. I wanted to grow up with a good education. I'm not just pro-life, which means I care about the baby being born. I'm whole life. I want that little girl to become a fully functioning disciple of Christ and, and to grow to become all that God intended for her to become. Too often, we've only cared about unborn babies until they're born, and then we don't care that they live in poverty or live with racial injustice or, or live with um, uh, you know uh, abuse and things like that. So we have to care about the whole thing. And part of the way we're going to have to earn respect back is this. People will listen to what we say if they like what they see, but they've got to see it first. If people like what they see, then they will listen to what we say. For instance, when COVID hit, Saddleback Church was shut down for a year and a half because we're in California, which is the most stringent state on COVID restrictions. We didn't have church services for a year and a half. We were completely, now there were a lot of people out there protesting saying this is opposing religious freedom. No, no, it, it wasn't a proposition of religious freedom. It would have been persecution if they were letting everybody else be open. But they shut down everything else too. There were no concerts. There were no sporting events. It was equal across the board. Disneyland shut down. Okay, Disneyland's 20 minutes from, from my church. And I told our people, said, folks, Saddleback Church and Disneyland will probably be the last two things to reopen in Orange County because we're the two biggest things in the county. We both have 30,000 people on Sunday. And sure enough, that's what happened. Saddleback and Disneyland opened on the same week, uh, uh, about a year and a half later. Now, there were little churches that were allowed to open sooner. We didn't begrudge, begrudge that. We were happy for them. But instead of worrying about, well, we can't have worship. Well, we, we went online. We did online worship. But instead of saying, how do we get the community back into the church during COVID? We said the exact opposite. How do we get the community? How do we get the church into the community to help during COVID? We started the most food distribution sites and became the number one distributor of food in Southern California. When COVID hit, over 400 uh, 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 food banks and stuff like that shut down. They mm -hmm. just shut down because they didn't have anybody else. So we said, we got to take up for that. We, we invented a thing. Normally we have our own food bank and we feed about two to 4,000 families a month on a normal month. The first month COVID hit, we went to 40,000 families the first month. We said, this isn't going to work. We can't have everybody come into one place. So we developed over 400 pop-up sites from all through Southern California, Los Angeles and Orange County, millions and millions, 20 million plus people in Southern California. And we became the number one food distributor. We also began sharing our faith with people who came for food. And in the three years of COVID, we fed over a half a million families and individuals, and close to 40,000 of those people gave their lives to Christ. COVID 
May, we were the most effective evangelistic years during COVID when we weren't having church services. <laughs> so it, it is go, it, it's when life gives you a lemon, make lemonade, go into the, into the community. And instead of complaining about, well, we can't meet, we just had services online. We had our small groups meeting in small groups and even the small groups meeting online, but we're going into the community. If people like what they see, they'll listen to what we say. That's really interesting that you talk about that, Rick, because obviously you're responsible for building one of the biggest mega churches in in the world. Yeah. So to kind of do you have any reflections on the, the mega church? Um, because I've spoken to people in the past fairly recently yeah. who've said, actually, the mega church, that that model needs to die. That's not that's not a good way to do church anymore. Well, you know, there's been all, all kinds of problems that resulted in those big scaled up churches that have become about celebrity about status about platform you know and you're here now telling me actually we did you know we, we had more baptisms than <laughs> during the time when churches yeah, yeah, yeah. closed so yeah well, what's your view now as someone who has been at the forefront of well, that kind is, of this mega is church really movement? Good. you're asking great questions megan um as the leader of finishing the task which is how do we get the gospel to everybody uh by the year 2033 by the way i keep saying 2033 why because here's here's the thing. If this really is 2023, this is the year 2023, we're talking about AD since the birth of Christ. It's 2023 years since the birth of Christ. That means Christ was born in year zero. Now, the book of Luke tells us that Jesus started his ministry at age 30. So he, Jesus started his ministry in 30 AD. He had a three-year ministry. So Jesus Christ died on the cross in AD 33. Jesus was resurrected in AD 33. Jesus gave the great commission in AD 33. He went back to heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to start the church in AD 33. That means in 10 years, 2033, it's the 2000th anniversary of the resurrection. It's the 2000th birthday of the church. It's the 2000 on Christianity. It's the 2000th anniversary of the Great Commission. So we're saying, why not just choose that as a date? Okay, there's no eschatological meaning to that date. It's just a date. Why don't we just choose that date as our target for getting the gospel uh, and, and to do four different things? Uh, one of them is we want in the next 10 years, and we're, we're working with all of the, the different uh, agencies, in the next 10 years, we, we, we call it this, Bibles, Believers, Bodies of Christ, and Breakthrough Prayer. These are the four goals of FTT. Bibles, we want everyone to have access to a Bible in their heart language by AD 33, AD 2033. That means we've got to speed up translation. There's still languages that don't have a Bible in their heart translation. Number two, we said we want... Um, uh, we, we want uh, Bibles believers. We want every person in the world to hear the good news through a believer who shares their story. That means we've got to train an awful lot of people. Number three, bodies of Christ. We want everybody in the world to have access to a local church within distance of them ever, around the world. It's there for them to go to. And four, breakthrough prayer. This will only happen if we have breakthrough prayer, we want to have every person on the planet prayed for by name one time in the next 10 years. 
These are four enormous goals. But when you think about, well, we got 2.6 billion out there to mobilize, one out of every three. If every Christian who claimed to be a Christian shared the good news three times in the next 10 years, some everybody here in that way. Now, in, when, it, when we talk about that third goal, bodies of Christ, we want to have a church access to everybody. We're going to, we're not going to, we're already doing it, starting three kinds of churches. We call them rabbit churches, tiger churches, and elephant churches. Rabbit churches are house churches. They meet in homes. There's no building there. Rabbits multiply very, very fast. A rabbit church is extremely simple. It's a group of six people, eight people, 10 people meeting in a home. That's the only kind of church we had for the first 300 years of Christianity. There were no church buildings. Listen, there were no church buildings during the fastest period of growth for 300 years. We grew, there were no pulpits, there were no church buildings. Uh, why did they grow? They had no internet, no printing press, no planes, trains, automobiles, uh, no, they had none of this radio, TV, none of the stuff we think we have to have today. A rabbit church, I raised rabbits when I was a kid. I grew up in the country, in the countryside. And a, 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 a female rabbit doesn't have a menstrual period. And so that means she can deliver, at five, she can get pregnant five minutes after she delivers. She has a one month pregnancy and she can deliver up to 12 babies. Well, that means she can get pregnant 12 times in a year. So theoretically she could have 140 babies in one year. Rabbits, they say they multiply like rabbits. And so small groups or house churches are the most effective way to spread the gospel. By far the most effective way because you can start them faster and faster and faster. We've started as many as 50,000 in, in the nation of India alone. It's an amazing, but they're simple. The next kind of church is called the tiger church. And we call it a tiger church because of its strength. It's almost indestructible. And a tiger church has anywhere between 50 and maybe 200 people. That's where most churches are in the world today. 95% of all the churches in the world have between 50 and 200 people. And it's much stronger than a rabbit. Okay, and, and a tiger, it's almost indestructible. It's hard to destroy a church that has 75 people in it. It'll go for 100 years. The preaching's terrible, and uh, the, somebody runs off with the deacon's wife, and, uh, but still, it just keeps going because they're there for the relationships. A tiger church is much stronger, but it, uh, it's, it doesn't reproduce as fast, okay? A, a tiger will only have has a nine-month pregnancy, uh, and then we'll have one at the most, two cubs, and then she can't get pregnant again for a year. So while it's stronger uh, than a rabbit church, but it, it's, it doesn't reproduce as fast. Then there are the elephant churches. The elephant churches are the mega churches. And the, the value of a mega church, you don't need a mega church everywhere. You need mega churches where there are mega cities. Because when, a when an elephant moves, it shakes the ground. It has cultural impact. It has cultural impact that tigers or, or rabbits don't have. But the downside of, of an elephant church is very slow reproduction. An elephant has a two-year pregnancy, carries a baby for two years. 
Now, when that baby's born, it's 800 pounds, but it's only one. So in finishing the task, we're focusing all our energy on the rabbit churches because they reproduce the most. If some of them become tiger churches, fine. And if one out of a thousand becomes an elephant church, fine. But that's not our primary goal. You, you don't need a, a, a mega church where you don't have a mega city, okay? And so it, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like, uh, uh, well, it's, just, it's like having an ideal that you don't really need. You don't really need. So do they have their place? Yeah, but not for everybody. In fact, what we need is lots of tigers and lots of, uh, of, uh, of um, rabbits. You're listening to The Profile. I'm Sam Hales, and you have been listening to my colleague Megan Cornwell in conversation with the mega church leader and author of Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren. Wasn't that a fantastic conversation if you enjoyed it we would love it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this podcast from right now please give us a five star rating and a little review just to say what you appreciated about this episode it's really helpful in helping other people discover this show and the weekly interviews we're doing with well-known christians from all walks of life if you are enjoying it give us a rating and a review right now it really helps thanks so much You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.